So this week on the show, on episode 69, we had our guest on the show, Tristan Cooper, who popped in to talk about the reopening of cinemas in the UK and also a few other things. Uh, In the show, it was a very edited version of the conversation. In this special bonus episode, not only towards the back half of the episode do you get the unedited conversation, but also I had the pleasure of jumping on to have another quick catch-up chat with Tristan, which we recorded, and uh, that provides... Well, give it a listen. It's quite an interesting look into the mind of two film geeks. So, uh, our guest today is Tristian Cooper, who I've known since way back in the past of 2001, just before the double whammy of the Harry Potter first film and Lord of the Rings came out. We both made the mistake of starting working at cinemas. Uh, And over the years, he's become one of those true friends that despite the fact he lives hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and we only see each other maybe once a year, if that, we straight away fall into conversation from where we left off and just love the banter. And this is what is great about a proper friendship. It's not about how often you see someone. It's about having that connection and that that perfect gelling between you. Um, also, it's worth noting that Film File probably wouldn't exist today if it was for not for my friendship with this guy. Well, first of all, I must admit, I've never really liked you, Andy. Uh, I don't know where you get the friendship thing from. No, I'm kidding. Of course, I'm kidding. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> no, it's like you say, mate. We've known each other now for going on 20 years. And uh, yeah, we. I moved to London in 2005. And ever since then, that I've tried to keep in contact with a lot of my friends back in Sheffield and the surrounding areas, but it's tricky to do. But you're one of the guys who I've often spoken to on uh, various social platforms and message. And every so often, we see each other in fact only last year before the pandemic kicked in we were able to meet up with a mutual friend of ours and get together and go to the cinema and have a couple of bevies and just have a general catch-up face to face which was absolutely lovely and uh, i do miss it and we need to arrange something again soon once we're able to but um yeah god 20 years amazing amount of time and when we started together because i started in july of 2001 and you joined i believe in september of that year and uh, instantly i think we kind of well uh, this is where the memory might get a bit phasey, but I think kind of instantly we connected because of our love of film, uh, because of our, we are both geeks, nerds, whatever. I, you know, I wear those names with pride. I don't care if people yeah. call me that because it's what I am. I love films. I love comic books. I love sci-fi. I'm into all that kind of stuff. And you've got similar passions as well. You know, fantasy, role-playing, game-playing, of course. You know, I've, I've owned every PlayStation under the sun. You, you know, go back to the 70s. I was in the arcades in the late 70s playing computer games. Uh, I never had a Commodore or a Spectrum, but I had an Atari 2600 like most kids in the 80s. And so that kind of stuff is just induction in me. And it's the same for you. So I think we connected. We've also got a very similar sense of humor. We kind of get it each other although sometimes we might one of us might say something and the other will go huh okay <laughs> but that, but then that happens with friendships is okay i towed the line a bit too far there but quite often we're we're both going over the line together if that makes sense and we and we just kind of we just kind of know each other so yeah it's uh it's one of those friendships which i uh I, I i do love and i hold close to my heart and i know that 
I am so confident that I think 30 years from now, as old men, we'll still be chatting away to each other in the same kind of way. Uh, and, you say and 30 I think years when... from now when we're old men, but let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're pretty much there already. <laughs> yeah, for, okay, so older men, should I say, where um, we've currently got white and grey flecks in our beards, but I think it will just be Santa Claus effect for both of us by that time. But I, I'm sure that people listening will maybe nodding along saying, yeah, I've got one or two, or, or maybe even more friends that exactly like that we've all got those kind of friendships i mean i mean you've got a close mate with adnan for instance you know and a mate of mine called neil who is uh, he is almost like a brother to me because we were once bruise brothers together um but that's where our friendship grew you know so um there are people that you meet in your life and i think if i just get slightly serious for a moment here that the last year with covid i think has just highlighted those meaningful friendships in our lives uh and made them i think more more powerful more personal and and you know i do miss people i have although it's great to talk over things like you know zoom chats and what have you there's nothing i like more than going down the pub or meeting up and going somewhere and having time spent physically with people that i know and love and i think yeah that's something we have all been missing so um but it's still great to catch up with you mate and talk about the old things and our lives in cinema because of course i was a team member at um, cineworld sheffield or ugc sheffield as it was known back then you came in at management level from was it from was that the job from mcdonald's McDonald's? yes yes i remember you came in but that was great because you had that kind of side and you uh but your love of film meant that you became a film um sorry, a manager in the cinema, you adapted to it so quickly, you know, um, and there were other people there who had been working for quite some time who maybe didn't get the film side of it. You got the film side straight away. And I remember one of your strengths, like I think my, one of my strengths is, is when talking to people about films, we're knowledgeable, but even if with the knowledge isn't quite there, and maybe I'm talking about myself, uh, if uh, not quite knowledge about the film, but the passion's there. Because when I worked on the floor for those four years, I loved talking to customers about what they wanted to see, what they'd seen, yeah. their favorite genres. And I'm, I'm, if I remember rightly, you were the same. There's some pleasure that comes from when you, like a customer can't decide what they want to see and you talk through all the films that you're showing. And even if you don't like something, you still know how to put the positive spin to sell it to the customer. But you get to know the regular customers and get to know what their tastes are and can guide them and advise them. And then they come back to you the next time because they trust your advice. That's the, some pleasure. I mean, that's one of the things joys that I get from working in the cinema, getting to know the customers and getting to know their taste in films and getting the feedback from them on what they liked and what they didn't like, uh, because we love talking about it, which, you know, it led to a, a, a radio show on Sheffield live, which it was Steve Clark, who was one of the regular customers, who he was hassling both you and me um, to try to get someone to co-host a show for him on Sheffield Live. And I just couldn't get the time. But you you volunteered yourself to go and buddy up with him. Yes, I did. I mean, Steve's a lovely bloke because, again, we, that's someone who we've known for quite some time. And yeah. uh, every every so often, I'll chat to him on Facebook, and uh, he's he's a lovely bloke. He loves his films, and he's very passionate he's spamming about my it. feed today. He's absolutely spamming my feed. Oh, of course he is, because he he Cause... loves to get involved. You know, he's, <laughs> he's just one of those guys. But uh, yeah, you're right. He we um, we did this little radio thing on Sheffield Live, and it was called, funnily enough, Film File or the <laughs> Film File potentially, um, a, a title which I know that you said to me um, that you feel that it, you nicked it. Um, I I disagree. I don't think you are. I think you've just kept the legacy of that name going. I don't feel it was uh, because you were part of it. Because although Steve and I started it originally, I think quite quickly we ma- we did manage to get you to start, kind of come on and guest and to get it involved. Was, 
I know the very first episode that I got involved was just before Revenge of the Sith. You did a Star Wars focus and you got me and two other people who were Star Wars fans to come in and talk about our love of Star Wars. And that was the first time that I was on it. And it was from the banter that we built up afterwards in the bar that it was like, well, Andy, you can come back if there's a chance. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, that was uh, that would have been what April, May of two thousand and five. Then I think yeah. because so... because then in September of two thousand and five, I of course got my uh, I don't want to say job promotion. I got my job change <laughs> and moved down to London and became a film booker. So I had I physically left the city, but then you took over and uh, worked as with co-host. Steve quite a, as a co-host. Yeah, and worked yeah, because um, up until that point, if if you weren't available for one week or Steve wasn't, I just guessed in. Mm. as a substitute each time so i worked with each of you individually but then like when you moved away i basically became that permanent fixture in the second seat and then the following year steve himself got himself a job i think he was working in germany selling ceramic tiles or something i don't know he, he's done all kinds of things that um, was his story <laughs> <laughs> um and i just ended up hosting the show myself and it became my show now mm. you say that i inherited it and i kept on the legacy no literally after i was first on the show i went online and found the domain name film file was available so <laughs> i bought it so i stole it while i wasn't even a part of it properly uh, oh. but yes i, I mean I've, we've i've had this joke with steve about it and he said that he stole the name film file anyway from a itv about two o'clock in the morning they had the film file oh really uh, <laughs> yeah. i didn't know that <laughs> So, so we're all thieves. No, we're all thieves. But you know, it was that entry as a guest on the Star Wars one, which is a subject that I was comfortable talking about, mm. that made me realise how much I, I enjoyed. I was going to say that enjoyed the sound of my own voice, but no, is <laughs> I enjoyed sharing opinions on films yeah. with a wider audience, and that's what got me into doing that. And after the radio show stopped through various reasons, I did a mini podcast to keep things going and I set up my website for typing up reviews and you know I've kept the film file focus going and over the past few years it's basically grown into what we're listening to today the new film file podcast which I think we found the format with basically (laughs) buddies who just talk films and if anyone wants to listen glad you enjoy it because these are just us expressing opinions Uh, but it all came from that first show that you'd it was you who'd asked me not steve because you knew that i was hugely passionate about star wars and you you were like andy will be fantastic because he'll be able to talk about it confidently and about his love of it and what it meant to him and so you're responsible for the film file kind of (laughs) (laughs) sort of in a roundabout way over the last 16 years potentially but yeah no you're right i immediately thought of you because i thought you're just again it's that coming down to that like-mindedness you know and i figured that we could have a good chat about it that yeah hopefully uh on the radio station would be interesting to people so you say loving the sound of your own voice i mean that i i over the last couple of years i've been considering doing my own little thing but then i thought who really wants to listen to me you know yabber on about stuff but um <laughs> since lockdown started and i've been involved in in various podcasts over the last year and a half i've, I've found I've, I've enjoyed it and it sounds like occasionally i say something that actually makes sense or is actually nice and good to listen to <laughs> it's one of so, those you throw enough things at a wall one of them's some, got to stick <laughs> someone's got to stick drip down and make a puddle on the floor and i feel that i'm that puddle uh and i'm more than happy to contribute so but no i, I love I, I didn't know about the um the fact that steve had stolen it so we need to have a talk about him and i believe maybe maybe money is owed to us i don't know but uh it's uh 
it, it, when I saw that you'd named it Film File and you and Lee had started doing it, I just I just remember smiling to myself thinking, oh, that brings back memories. <laughs> I'm going to have to have a little listen to this pod and see what they're doing, you know. So, and uh, like I said, I've listened to not all your pods, I must admit. I, I apologize for that. It's going to find time to try and catch up on everything. But I've listened to most of them, certainly this year. Uh, and it's just been great to listen to, mainly because, and it, from a personal point of view, it's just great to hear the voices of yourself and Lee Ford, who, you know, I mean, especially Lee, I've not seen him since i left sheffield um but when we recorded uh the the main segment the other day it was fantastic just chatting with him and it felt like i'd only seen him a couple of days ago how weird is that like you say those those friendships that remain in place that um you can come back to years later and it's not awkward it's not weird it's just how you doing oh i'm good and then you just get straight back into the banter um that's i think that's pretty special i think i think it is yeah uh now a regular feature on the show is me and Lee talking about our early introduction to films and films that have stood out to us through the years, which we call our deep dives. Now, me and you are both of the same era, and I know that you've had some of the same influences as me. We've both we've talked about Star Wars multiple times and how we we both remember seeing it at the cinema and the big screen when we were like, wee little babies. Um, <laughs> and then the following year, well, for the, it was the same year for you, but just about the following year for me, we saw a man fly in a red cape and red underpants. You know, those kind of images stuck with us and introduced us to film and made us go as children. This is what I want in my life. What other films are there from your life that stand out as those, those ones that defined your taste in films? Oh, crikey. I will try and keep this short because there are so many, (laughs) uh, so many. Um, I mean, yeah, in this, in the seventies, that's kind of where it began for me. You know, I was born 72. So people can have an idea of what time frame I'm talking about here. Um, So yeah, I was six years old when I saw Star Wars, but prior to that, uh, my nan had been taking me to a cinema called the classic cinema in Sheffield, which unfortunately burned down in 84. And I believe it's a Couplands at the moment on that corner where the tram stops are. Uh, It may have changed again. I've not been back to Sheffield in a while but uh yeah it uh, maybe it's a couplands it's some kind of uh, bakery store i'm pretty sure still um, a couplands i think it's still a couplands there you go <laughs> some things in sheffield never really change and i quite like that um yeah so uh she would take me there probably as like a, a four five year old every weekend to see the the disney reissues that were being played mm. at the time and uh just a bit of a personal side here um when i moved to head office in 2005 and started working in the film team i met a guy called ron nicholson who's kind of an old fella he, he retired in 2014 and we when we got chatting and getting to know each other as you do we it kind of transpired that basically through his 46 year plus career he's booked every cinema across the country at some point because <laughs> he's worked through all the different companies and i got talking about oh well when i were a young wee lad i'd go to this cinema the classic in sheffield and he went oh i used to book that in the 70s i was like really what kind of films did you put in there and he went oh i'd do all the disney reissues and some of the big releases <laughs> i was like you're kidding me I went to I and I and that's when we got talking about I went to that cinema as a young child so basically sort of 70 76 77 he was booking in those Disney films that I was going to go, I was watching. And then later as an adult, I actually worked with the man. So the guy who kind of informed me as a young film, as a young cinema fan, I actually got to work with him. And and that's one of those weird things that happen sometimes in life that you, just, yeah, which is fantastic. Plus Ron Nicholson is, is one of the most, is, as they'd say down in London, he's a diamond of a geezer. He's absolutely. Yeah, he's, a, he's a great guy, Ron. Yeah, he's brilliant, and I, I must admit, I miss him, and I think the the industry misses him because uh, when you when it comes to experience, 
he's just experienced everything, you know, through all the changing times that cinema has gone through. He was right there at the core of it. Uh, the, fact, the idea that he could have booked every cinema at some point in his career, I think, is is wonderful. <laughs> although, although nothing since two thousand fourteen. So, any new cinemas that have opened, that just yeah, okay, fair enough. I concede that. Um, but yeah, so so I, I watched um, stuff on TV. I mean, my grandfather was a huge, huge John Wayne fan. I have seen every western, every World War Two film, every movie that John Wayne has ever been in. My grandfather forced upon me. Now I say that because for for quite some time i didn't like the western genre because i felt i'd seen everything however there are still some favorites like shane and stage uh, coach and searchers and rio bravo is it rio no rio grand sorry um there are some films that do stick with me but i it got to the point where i was like oh, i can't watch another western ever granddad however <laughs> Uh, I do like World War II movies. I had a love of World War II and, and, and military-themed films. And also one of my favorite John Wayne films is actually The Quiet Man, which is a wonderful film from the 1950s uh, where he, uh, he plays a boxer, uh, a pugilist. And it, it's a wonderful film, and it's one of my all-time faves. So um, thank you for that, Grandad. Uh, shame about the Westerns, but it was Unforgiven that made me love Westerns again. So it only took until 1992. <laughs> uh, and then I'm a child of the 80s. I mean, oh, crikey. I remember seeing Popeye at the cinema, Clash of the Titans. Oh, there's yeah. a... Popeye's a film that I, I am still baffled as to how few people have actually seen it. Yeah. Every time I mention it, people go, there's a live action Popeye. Yeah, Robbie Williams. Yeah. What? <laughs> and, although and it's it... great. It's, it's a Robert Altman classic, as far as I'm concerned. I yeah. rank that alongside MASH. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sure by today's standards, it won't sit up to anyone watching it for the first time. But I've got memories of enjoying that as as a kid. And I, you know, it's it's part and parcel of my DNA, like Star Wars, you know, like all the films that, that followed through as your childhood. You know, you're always going to have those rose tinted glasses. But I actually think Popeye is a decently made family mm. entertaining film, you know, of any era i just i feel maybe sometimes modern audiences don't always take into time into factor the time variance when things were made there's a reason why certain films are considered classics and i i honestly would put Pop, popeye up there because it's great <laughs> plus it introduced me to robin williams and then I, when i saw him on uh, tv on in mork and mindy i just loved yeah. him even more you know uh, but through the 80s i mean i'm an 80s child so um Despite some of the sequels being terrible, terrible, I know I'm a big fan of things like Police Academy and Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> Ghostbusters is still to this day my all-time favorite film. I'm talking 1984, not 2016. Um, <laughs> in fact, it's great that Ghostbusters 2 from 1989 is no longer the worst Ghostbusters film. So at least, <laughs> at least thank you for that, Melissa McCarthy and the rest of you. Um, and and things like you know, I'm 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 talking absolute franchise classics now. You know, Indiana Jones and Back to the Future films like Romantic the Stone, Jewel of the Nile, um, horror films as well, though, even though I was quite young with the advent of uh, video and uh, VHS, not Betamax, unfortunately, lost the, lost the fight that one. Um, but I remember watching stuff younger than I should have been, thanks to my mates having a video recorder. Uh, and I remember watching things like Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween and all those kind of, and instead of being, well, I, I'm now at that point in my life where it takes a lot to scare me for a horror mm. film to really affect me. It's got to be something special because I've seen so many horror films <laughs> and I've seen what I consider to be the golden era, which is kind of mid seventies to, to I'd say maybe mid nineties before it all got a little bit kind of yeah. Um, but some of the stuff from the eighties, uh, just the ideas, maybe not the budget and there was no CGI. It was all practical effects and uh, mannequin work and, uh, and little blood pockets hidden away. And sometimes you could see, the trick but you didn't care 
It was, <laughs> it was atmospheric. It was well, all these films were so well made. I thought on whatever budget scale they were. And I, I just became a fan of horror. And I think it basically helps that I'm, I'm not a very spiritual person. So when I watch like a film that's more spiritually rather than a, a guy running around with a blade or something, I guess I don't get too scared or invested in it in that kind of respect, but I still love a good jump. I love it yeah. when a film can make me jump and make me go, oh, oh, booger. <laughs> I didn't I didn't <laughs> see that coming, you know. Um, in fact, I would say that the last film that really, truly got under my skin and absolutely terrified me was the Spanish film uh, from 2007, I think it was, called Wreck. Um, I thought that oh. was absolutely brilliant. A lot of, a lot of um, me followers on Twitter who take part in the movie talk, um, whenever we talk about horror films and, like, your zombie films and your epidemic kind of films, the Wreck series always comes up as a firm favorite for everyone it's such a well-told film it's the it, it takes the whole home video kind of approach but it does it as like a tv net station is recording inside the whole thing and it gives you the claustrophobic tension as a result marvelous maybe not the third wreck film mm, let's not bother with that one but the first yeah. two classics yeah well i was just about to say that and uh, hopefully not get too much stick for this but in my opinion i think that wreck 2 is one of those few sequels that's actually more superior to the first one and, and is a wonderful counterpiece to it because it tells the same story but from a different angle because you're going in yeah. with the the swat team and seeing how how they dealt with it so you get a lot of scenes reenacted but from a different point of view doing a wreck double bill I, if you're a horror fan, or if you're a horror fan, you should have seen them anyway. But if you're a horror fan and you've <laughs> never seen Wreck 1 and 2, I do urge you to, uh, if they're available streaming or rent them out, because you won't be disappointed. As a fan of like a, an outbreak zombie type film, they're absolutely brilliant. Yes, the third one, unfortunately, was that Genesis? Was that like a prequel, if I remember rightly? I've it only was... watched it once. And because uh, there's Genesis and there's po yeah. Apocalypse. Uh, yeah, one of them is the wedding thing, which it was entertaining, but it was a real dropping quality from the the first yeah. two uh, i didn't mind apocalypse so much it was better than resident evil apocalypse that's for sure <laughs> but <yet>. <laughs> <laughs> but um but as a series i mean all four films i i think are still very watchable and great as a you know as a quadruple what would you call it? triple bill <laughs> quadruple a, a bill i don't know but i would certainly recommend rex one and two because i don't think you, yeah. i don't think you can go wrong with those and there have been other horror films i'm a big fan of the conjuring series and some of some of the uh, spin-offs you know um but occasionally i i'll watch one of those spin-offs and there'll be nothing in there that i personally find scary um but i'll still watch it and i still enjoy it um but uh, yeah, so the horror genre, sci-fi genre, I even like romantic films. And Pretty Woman, for me, is still one of the best romantic comedies I think ever made. I do genuinely love that film uh, for two reasons. One, because I actually do think it's good. I like Richard Gere in it. And <laughs> Julia Roberts, of course, was just amazing. But also, thanks to that film, um, I became a fan of the Red Hot Chili Peppers because one of their songs is on the soundtrack. <laughs> and I just thought they were awesome. And then I watched Back to the Future 2 again and their bassist Flea is actually in the film. Uh, <laughs> and so in the early part of the 90s, I was just finding all these things out. And it's like, oh, that's right. But again, it was part of my film education. And that was a thing during the 80s for me. Um, horror films I enjoyed uh, didn't turn me into some kind of weird deviant. It just turned me into a film lover and a, a person who appreciates film uh, and from the 80s i mean alien okay 79 but alien and aliens and predator and die hard uh in fact anything with schwarzenegger i have to admit i i love because i he was a tour de force back then and he has made some iffy dodgy films but for the most part i can put on an arnold schwarzenegger film and just for those couple of hours just have fun and enjoy it uh, and i think that's what it is i think for anyone from the 80s of our generation andy is that sometimes some modern day films can forget 
get to put the fun in there or they can just yeah. take a concept too far. Whereas in the 80s, they just seem to nail it. Like Bill and Ted, it, when you think about it, it's a completely ridiculous film, but it works. It, as a high concept, it works. And it works on the charm of the two leads being so good. And those characters actually being really well developed. I know they're like the dumb surfer knucklehead dudes that were so popular at the time and they were lampooning and spoofing that. But I've got a genuine love for Bill and Ted and I like them as people as crazy as that sounds because they are kind of because they are kind of caricatures but they managed to they managed to humanize them i thought very very well in the first two films which is why i give a little bit more leniency towards face the music (laughs) even though i know it's not that great a film it was still brilliant to see those two again uh and then yeah during the 90s the, uh, the blockbuster phase you know i Oh God! As a as a kid, as a five year old, I wanted to be a paleontologist and actually dig up dinosaur bones. <laughs> so when Jurassic Park came along, that was absolute mecca for me, you know. Um, and a lot of the stuff Independence Day because of my sci fi love of sci fi and B movie roots, you know. Um, yeah, it's it's probably Andy easier to list the films I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, on that subject, I've I've witnessed you. <laughs> sit through some utter rubbish and you have resisted leaving the screen until that film's ended churchill the hollywood years is one example that i always refer to because you were running a press show of it in one screen and you were the only person in there because everyone else was next door watching one of the spider-man films we had a preview screening of, or something going on for the film days celebration and i popped my head in and saw that you were completely not enjoying Churchill or Hollywood years. <laughs> and it went up to you and went, there's still space in Spider-Man if you want to watch it. And you went, no, I'm sticking this out. <laughs> well, so have you ever <laughs> walked out of a film? Has there ever been a film that has been too much? <laughs> well, uh, actually, to be honest with you, no. I have never, <laughs> ever walked out of a film. Um, <laughs> crikey, Churchill, I'd done so... I, I tried to forget about that film so much, but I think the reason was because I'd been lucky enough to already see uh, Spider-Man 2. I believe I'd already seen it. So it would have been a bit cheeky to sit in there and watch it again. But like you said, there was space. But I, I, I don't know. I guess um, even as a young child and as a young adult, I've always thought... People have, have, have made this film. They've put a lot of time, money, and effort into it. Nobody sets out to make a bad film on purpose. I, I truly believe that. Nobody, especially in the Hollywood system. But sometimes films just are bad. They really are. Bad <laughs> script, bad acting, wrong casting choices. The director was clearly off their noggin and didn't know what they were doing. All kinds of contradicting factors can can make a film seem like a good idea on page and then the end result is terrible sometimes studio interference <laughs> we all we've all seen that so i try and stick it through because i think it's only fair to the filmmakers to at least even if i get to the end of it and go that is one of the worst films i've ever seen and then that falls <laughs> back to my other dictum of well i think sometimes i think it's a good thing to see bad films because then you have a comparison because you can say, well, these are the bad films, but this is how I know these films are good because they're not that. They're not Churchill. Um, but I will say one thing. There was one film back in 1996 where I, I really did come like, 
this close to walking out. In fact, my girlfriend at the time turned to me and said, Tris, I'm really not enjoying this and I can see you're not enjoying it. Should we leave? And this was <clears throat> this was back when I paid for cinema. Uh, I, I said to her, I said, well, we've paid the tickets and I love the first one, so I really want to stick this out, but it could get better. <laughs> I even said that. I went, I, I mean, we were whispering. We weren't, uh, there weren't that many people in there, but I went. It was it Mortal get... Kombat Annihilation? Oh, <laughs> no, because I, I, I love Mortal Kombat and I've got a soft spot for the sequel, even though I know it's bad. I got a soft spot for it. Uh, no, it was, and that was 98. So, oh God, I'm t- I'm, I remember these years far too much. It was the Crow City of Angels. Oh. Now I, yeah. Oh. Now I love the original one. Um, and it was a guy called Vincent Perez who took over the role from Brandon Lee, obviously after his unfortunate demise on the set of The Crow. I love The Crow. I thought it was not only was it a good uh, interpretation of the source material yeah. back, bef- back before comic book films were a, a genre all of their own, but it was a really good representation of what actually was in the, the books. But also, I just thought it was a cracking good film. And I said that to friends who were like, oh, well, I've never read The Crow. You don't need to. Everything's explained. Everything's presented. And Brandon Brandon Lee is a fo- he's a star in the make oh oh he was a star in the making um don't watch yeah. rapid fire uh, but you know I thought the crow was fantastic it was a highlight of 94 and then two years later this oh lamentable sequel comes along and, and I remember sitting there thinking I I want to leave I just didn't enjoy it. it it was a one-star film I've never watched it again and I never want to and uh, it, it, it almost caused me and my like I said, my girlfriend at the time to have a bit of a bust up afterwards because <laughs> she was she wasn't happy because unfortunately it was the week where it was my choice for the film and I chose that but the, but she was happy because she was like oh I love the first crow so did I let's go watch it on Friday night absolutely and by eleven o'clock on Friday night neither of us were very happy or in a good mood um the only other film that comes close to that was uh, if you remember the Terence Malick film the Thin Red Line yeah. Now that film, I had a really, I really wanted to like it because again, the war theme and the cast on it was amazing. Mm-hmm. But I do remember watching it in what was back in the day. Screen seven was the full Monty screen in Sheffield. Not now it's an IMAX. And I was uh, watching it, I think in the afternoon and there was only a few people in there opening day, by the way, and I'm watching it and I'm finding it very tough to get into. And then Jim Caviezel has got one of the main like recurring roles in the film. And he starts this monologue. And it's a voiceover monologue as his character's walking around. And I nodded off. And I nodded off for about 10 minutes. And when I woke up again, he was still doing the same monologue. And I was like, oh, my God, when is this film going to end? And I, and I looked at my watch and I was thinking, I, I might actually just leave this screen. But again, I fought against that nature. Uh, and I've done that many, many times. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Will I ever walk out of a film? I've, I've, I've nodded off during a couple. But... Um, I've never actually taken that decision. So again, I throw it back to you. Have you ever actually walked out of a film and gone, no, I, I just can't be doing with this at all? I wished I had on quite a few <laughs> occasions. Um, a, a haunted house is probably one. Uh, but the, I won't because for me, there was one film that I was not enjoying and then the final act of it turned me around completely and made me reevaluate the whole film. And that was uh, Legends of the Fall. Oh. Which okay. was a film that I... My girlfriend at the time, we went to see it and I was not feeling it at all. I was, what on earth am I sat watching this? These are great actors, yes, but what is this nonsense that is on screen? And then the final act of that film struck me Mm. and it became one of my favourite films of that year. And so on that basis, I've always said that I will stick something through to the end because sometimes the final act 
will change your whole perception of everything that's going on. So I will stick, I will sit through anything. I mean, as you also know, I've got this rule each year as well of um, my palate cleanser um, <laughs> that I deliberately seek out bad films because I mean, you you said it yourself. You know, you need to see the bad films in order to have a a, a barometer to measure the quality of everything else. And I like to, within the first three months of the year, find a really bad film so that as you approach block, approach blockbuster season, where let's be honest, most of the films are okay. The okay films will seem so much better as a result. <laughs> the sequels to the Pirates of the Caribbean films were so much better because I'd probably seen Adam Sandler films just before them. <laughs> I was just going to say, usually you make that barometer film an Adam Sandler film. Is it every year or every two years you force yourself I to used watch... to have a rule of I had to watch every other Adam Sandler film right, and that's... every other Michael Bay film oh. now I've softened with Adam Sandler now because he's doing a lot more acting roles mm. and there's a lot of his I mean uh, Uncut Gems was an absolute highlight for me yeah. uh, Mayor Witt's stories has been a great output and I'm looking forward to his sci-fi one that he's got in the pipeline because it's it's him as a lone man on the edge of space, um, hearing a voice talking to him from the distant ebbs of time. And I love that he's taking these more challenging roles. However, if something's advertised as an Adam Sandler comedy, that's not getting watched. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing, because I think some of his goofball stuff is just painful to watch. Um, yeah. Although I, I do remember things like, I think Happy Gilmore's okay, and I quite like Waterboy, but he's a tough Ooh. one. Yeah, well, I know we differ on that one. Um, but but like I say, they're not brilliant comedies. You know, I, I'd say they're watchable films. Uh, and a lot of his stuff, I think, isn't watchable. And yeah, I have a tough time. But when he puts his mind to it and he actually performs a character, it's kind of like Melissa McCarthy. I normally can't stand her. But um, when she, act, like, for instance, Can You Ever Forgive Me is one of mm-hmm. not only the finest films I've seen her make. She's marvellous in the nines as well. Uh, exactly, yeah. And she's really good in St. Vincent, the film with Bill Murray, where she plays the mum of the young child that the Bill Murray character um, befriends. If, if she doesn't mug for the camera, and the same with Adam Sandler, when they don't mug for the camera and go, oh, look at me, how funny I can be. Yeah. And they're let off the leash and they they do all this ad-libbing and somebody doesn't edit that ad-libbing down, then they act, both of them can actually be very watchable. And I think they are talented. I, wow. Did I just say Melissa McCarthy might be talented not after, <laughs> not after Thunder Force. Um, but I, I do think that they're capable of so much more. Well, give us those films. Yeah. Like you said, I think as Adam's getting older, I think maybe he's realizing that goofball shtick doesn't work anymore. Even for his fan base doesn't quite work anymore. So try something new. Uncut gems. He was still funny. But it was such a good performance that he gave yeah. in that film. Absolutely. What's, what's bizarre is like I absolutely do not take to his comedy films, and yet a few years ago he did that stand-up special for Netflix, and I was in stitches. Yeah. I thought that stand-up-wise he's absolutely got it, but it's the films that he makes that there's clearly something going wrong with the sycophants that he surrounds himself with, and I I say that yeah I've always said that funny people which is another one of his films that stands high for me. I really rate it. He's playing himself throughout that whole film because he's playing a great stand-up of the past who's gone on to do films which are very mediocre because he <laughs> surrounded himself with sycophants who tell him how great he is and don't challenge him. And he re- wants to return to the stand-up circuit to challenge himself and get back some of that freshness. Yeah. 
he played himself. And that's what makes that film work so well is yeah. because it's a warts and all portrayal of Adam Sandler's own insecurities. Yeah, but I, yeah, that stand-up was amazing. And I, I will say one film that I will defend to the hilt. I honestly thought Wedding Singer was superb. I really genuinely did enjoy Wedding Singer. You may disagree. You're kind of uh, nodding. But yeah. I, I know it, it's, it's watchable because I like it when he plays the likable character. Sometimes he plays characters that aren't actually quite likable, but he plays the yeah. comedy on that. Like little Nicky, for instance. God, I wanted to stab myself in the eye when I was watching that. <laughs> uh, in fact, that would have been preferable. And again, why didn't I walk out? Well, like you say, it might get better. It might improve. It didn't. Oh, and Jack and Jill. Jesus Christ. But <laughs> but the, the stand-up routine that he did, yeah, more of that, please, yeah. because you are funny. One person who I'm very hot and cold with, sometimes I really like his stuff, and other times I'm just annoyed by him, and that is Kevin Hart. Yet his stand-up comedy routines that are on Netflix, some of them are absolute genius. He did one that was he did in basically in his basement at his mansion that he lives in, and it was quite personal because he only had a few uh, people in there as the audience, but he was able to do some really good comedy and get a reaction from the audience because they were close but not too close <laughs> because of COVID. But he was he's genuinely funny and very likable as a stand-up comic, and yeah, when he's doing his bits. I can't help but laugh. But then he tries to be funny or do scripted lines in films and it just doesn't work, you know, or he ad-libs a scene and it doesn't quite work. Like, for instance, I really like him in the Jumanji films. I really yeah. like his character in the yeah. Jumanji films and his humour in the Jumanji films really, really works. But then is it... I generally think that he works well against The Rock. Yeah, they're bromance. I think they have it's a good the on-screen chemistry between them, which helps lift him up to something more than what he normally is. Well, The Rock literally lifts him up. In, quite a few yeah, yeah. in Central Intelligence, <laughs> I think he did that a lot of the times. But no, you're right. Their bromance, their relationship is is becoming almost like a modern Abbott and Costello yeah. because they do work together. If you ever see outtakes of some of their films that they've worked on, they're clearly good friends. And some of their stuff on Twitter is and other social media platforms, absolutely brilliant. But that's what we, yeah, that's what we want. We want to see these kind yeah. of relationships develop, and we need like a modern day. I mean, these are the guys who would have been probably yeah, the Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd's of the past. You know, where you get two actors who just really gel and, and bounce off each other so well. Um, so yeah, more more Rock and Kevin Hart, and I do believe they are they have got a few other projects coming down the the line together. So uh, yeah, excited to see them. But when he's on his own in a film like the wed was it the wedding? planner or something or the wedding tackle he was on a film with wedding absolutely the wedding tackle wedding, no, <laughs> wedding tackle actually i think is a british film that is actually the title of the film i'm not just making that up but the wedding tackle i believe is a british not so funny comedy from a few years ago uh, i think it's the wedding planner or the wedding something or other and he's yeah it, again it's one of those roles where it, it could have been anyone in the role and he's not particularly funny but um yeah we both have those Oh, yeah. I can see you're searching for something now. <laughs> the Wedding Tackle, year 2000. <laughs> oh, that's the British one, right? James Purefoy, Adrian oh, Dunbar, Tony Slattery. Yep. <laughs> Tony Slattery, my goodness. <laughs> Amanda Redman. <laughs> yes, crikey. I saw that back in the day. Probably watched it as... Um, as Leslie a, a, Grantham was in it. Leslie I, Grantham. Dirty I Den. <laughs> I, I remember watching that at what was uh, would have been UGC Sheffield back in the day. I think they just turned in from Virgin to UGC, and I uh, bought the like the new Unlimited card thing. And I remember yeah. going to see anything, I was like, any film, I'll go watch. And this was a year before I, I was hired uh, at the cinema as well. <laughs> so um, yeah, so 
and again, that comes back to what we were talking about earlier, where um, I am pretty much a kind of person who will watch any kind of film, any kind of genre, any kind of film. I will go watch it just to see what it's about. Uh, I mean, 2001, cracky, yeah, 20 years now has been such, that was such a big year for me because before then, uh, and I'm not ashamed to admit this. I was just one of those people who, oh, if it's got subtitles, I can't be asked. I can't be bothered. I can't. I'm, I'm not going to. I don't go to the cinema to read. I unfortunately was one of those people. But two films changed my opinion that year and turned me into a lover of foreign cinema. And that was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I just absolutely adored, and Amelie. And yeah. both of those films got me into Japanese, uh, Korean, if any kind of Oriental filmmaking. Um, I've watched so much of that stuff. And French filmmaking as well. Can be a bit pretentious, some of them. <laughs> but for the most part, uh, wonderful. And then uh, Polish films and uh, German films and Russian films. In fact, anywhere from... I know you have a particular uh, thing where you're trying to watch various films from all across the world, <laughs> which I love. Um, but yeah, if I see... I've got more... Um, films with subtitles of uh, from a foreign language on my Netflix list than Hollywood films, and yeah. I'm quite proud of that because the it, the quality looks amazing. It's I just think fine. Netflix are marvelous for them um, their world cinema. Yeah, absolutely. On there, they've added a load over the past few months as well. They've really started to expand provide them. a wealth. The only problem is is that whereas I can work at my laptop and do stuff and have any kind of film in the background because my tv is actually just to my right of my desk so i can kind of half watch it and i can't do that with foreign language films <laughs> you have to sit down <laughs> you have to invest and watch it you know but um but i'm happy to do that more than happy to do that because that's the kind of stuff that i like with wreck you know that that was just absolutely and i was telling everybody i could you've got to see wreck but it's spanish isn't it don't matter you're watching an absolute quality film just you know for what 89 minutes yeah you read a bit of dialogue. Most of it's screaming and running, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, well, thanks for chatting. Okay. Um, yeah. It's it's great. It's been great to have you on the show, um, and we definitely need to get you back at some point, even just for a bonus episode of just me and you talking rubbish about films. Let's be honest, because uh, we've recorded the general conversation which went into the podcast. We've got the um, conversation just as an interest piece to do the bonus episode. But we must have recorded around six hours worth of recording <laughs> between us over the past week and a half because we, we jump on for these quick chats and we just get sidetracked. And that's what's great. And I hope that the listeners enjoy this bonus episode. Stick around, listeners, after this little bit, because you're going to hear the stuff from the actual episode that went out this week. But you're going to hear the longer takes. You're going to hear the... Well... To say that Trist goes off on tangents quite frequently is an understatement. So um, it, there's a lot to enjoy in the extended cut. So even if you've listened to the main show, you haven't heard half of the conversation yet. Well, Andy, I just want to say thank you so much to you and to Lee for being gracious enough to uh, invite me on. It has been great to catch up and just talk about things. And yes, dear listener, I just want to apologize now to your ears uh, for any damage that my ramblings <laughs> and my tangents may cause you. I hope you enjoy some of the stuff I talk about and agree with it or disagree with it. And uh, I'm sure Andy and Lee would love to know your thoughts on the pod. So thank you so much. Yes, happy to come back and talk about anything you want to in the future. Uh, even though I'm back to work now, uh, I'm always available. Although we may have to reschedule like we have for this. <laughs> when, when I suddenly end up doing a 14-hour day, which I wasn't expecting to. <laughs> um, but, but thank you so much. And uh, yeah, until next time, I just everybody take care and hope you're all keeping well and safe. And 
Oh, I'm done. <laughs> I'm you, done. David. I've run out of words. <laughs> I've run out of words. <laughs> so, as I said at the top end of the program, this week we are joined by a guest. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, a friend of the pod, Tristan Cooper. Tristan works down in that London as a film buyer for one of the major film cinema chains. So, Tris, tell us a little bit about, well, first start off, give us a bit of history. Tell us how you know uh, both uh, Andy and I from from years gone, as we just discovered, chatting off air. Okay, so I started in the cinema industry back in 2001. Uh, it was actually July, uh, the back end of July, so I am coming up to my 20th anniversary. Um, I'd been working at a place in Sheffield called the Rock Island Diner for about a decade, um, which was a themed restaurant where I was actually a DJ with a very bad American accent for that decade. Um, and I was looking for work. Uh, the place shut down in March, and I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I tried to find some DJing work, but it can be quite tricky sometimes. And I just saw an advertisement for uh, the local cinema which at the time was UGC um, yeah it was UGC Sheffield at the time and I just went along got interviewed and I got hired and that was the start of my journey um, I honestly didn't think I would still be there 20 years later it was and I admit this freely at the time six months just work there for six months get some cash try and find some DJ work and then move on with that part of what I thought was going to be my career. But instead, um, I just, I I became so ingrained in what was going on in the cinema so quickly, made friends so quickly and enjoyed working there. It was absolutely brilliant atmosphere to work in that I just uh, stayed longer than I expected. 20 years longer than I expected, as it turns out. Uh, So I worked at Sheffield for four years, actually. It always feels like it was longer, but it was four years, 2001 to 2005. And then in 2005, I got the opportunity to actually work for head office, which is uh, where I am now and where I've been for the last 16 years, working down in London. So Yeah, I mean, I remember when you got shipped out to London, because I've known you, Trist, since 2001. I started in the September, just a couple of months after you. And... uh, I mean, initially I was brought in for the retail side of the cinema, uh, working on the concessions management side of it. And I got chatting to you through our own love of film. Now, I chose to go to a cinema as that was going to be my career. So it's interesting to hear that you accidentally stumbled into your career and realized it was the kind of environment that you love. But I remember those like sitting in the office and just talking absolute nonsense about films as you moved from being shop floor focused and you got a lot of the film administration and marketing stuff, which is how you then pioneered um, the running of screenings for the local press, which is how we got to meet the lovely Lee. (laughs) It was indeed. I mean, I cherish the uh, morning press shows when it was just a group group of journalists huddled together in a darkened cinema to to usually at that point see things a couple of weeks in advance of, of release dates or if not a couple of weeks then then a, a few days which you know kind of those days are gone now um, and and that's how we all met uh, in particular so you you moved in away from cinema and into the world of, of cinema buying explain to the listeners what uh, a cinema buyer does what a film buyer does Okay, well, I'm still heavily involved in the cinema industry. It's just a part of the cinema industry that I think most people don't even know exists because when I joined Sheffield... I certainly didn't know that it existed. Um, very quickly, as I was learning all the... We used to have this uh, phrase. Uh, well, it was actually what we were called. We were called multitaskers, I think it was, or multifunctionals was the terminology that was used for us. Yeah. Mul- 
yeah, multi-something or other, definitely. And so I was learning box office. I was working on the floor. Um, I got roped into doing the like little DJ sets on Friday and Saturday because of my background as a DJ. Um, and uh, yeah, working concessions and doing all these other little things. And also ended up doing stuff back of house, including learning about how the film times were structured. Uh, there was two chaps there called uh, Chris Green and Dave Burnham, uh, both of whom I'm pretty sure you guys have fond memories of as well. Uh, and they sort of introduced me to that side of it so I was, and I learned that there are that there are there is a process for getting films into cinema and it involves um, uh, the head office of every cinema chain a film booking team who discuss with film distributors to play their films uh, on a weekly basis. They basically negotiate terms and deals and say, okay, you've got film A, film B, and in a couple of months you're going to be releasing film C. We agreed to play these films because we feel that at these cinema, at our cinema chain and at these certain cinemas, that film's going to have a lot of interest and people are really going to want to come and see it. And I learned all this in the space of a few months. And as Andy was saying, um, I, I got quite heavily involved in that. I, uh, I became a what was known as a film administrator and I was doing a lot of special screenings. It was an absolute pleasure to arrange the press screenings for people like yourself, Lee, uh, from that part of the industry because you, you know, you guys had come in with you all enthusiastic. You'd be watching the films, you'd be reviewing them, and that was again another side of it. I never really knew how that worked. You know, how are how do people in that industry get to see films so far in advance? And I learned, oh there we go it's screenings like this and I was a part of arranging that with our marketing team at head office as well so that was a wonderful little learning curve for me um and yeah and it just all kind of over the course of 2002 to 2004 certainly kind of just snowballed as my role at the cinema changed and evolved yeah I remember when um, you took the head office job I basically ended up stepping into your shoes <laughs> and as a manager taking over the role that you were doing and then got stuck in that role for the rest of my life. <laughs> I have always been the guru of film at whatever cinema I've worked at. I, I, even when I started at Light Cinemas a few years ago, the boss of that cinema sat with me and went, okay, I want you to um, look at doing the film times. Now I'll go through it with you. And I was like, mate, mate, I've done this for like almost 20 years. I'm fine with this. I've got it. Um, so I've always had that. But I know that the Mondays are usually the days of like putting the film schedules together. And it's not an easy process. Some days you ha Sometimes you have those days where you turn up and everything's all fine and the distributors are all, yay, love you, love you. Yeah, go with that, go with that. But I've had shifts where I've been sat at site from 7 a.m. till 9 p.m. waiting for the thumbs up. And even then, sometimes it's gone over to the Tuesday. So it's not an easy job. It's something that your general public, your listeners who don't understand that back of house operations always wonder, why aren't you showing this this week? Why aren't you showing that? What's going on here? Why have you only got this in a small screen? And it's because the distributors have certain certain things that they want before they'll show the film. And sometimes they will put stipulations on it. So it's hard trying to explain that to the members of the public, that everything that goes on behind to make it look like it's running smoothly is a nightmare. <laughs> um, yeah, over my 16 years that I've been doing this job, things have actually changed. But one of the fundamental basics is that distributors, they negotiate hard when they really want something and they want things to go their way. And uh, it's our job, really, to uh, we have one 
it's not really a saying, but our train of thought is we want to get the best lineup of films in all of our cinemas. Uh, because I work for one of the big multiplexes. I've worked for one of the big three. We have over 100 cinemas, and they don't all operate the same way. There are some huge cinemas, like a Sheffield, that can, that's got 20 screens and can run every type of film because the blockbusters, the small independent films, the Bollywood films, all these kind of different range films, there's an audience and a big enough audience to warrant playing those films. However, there are other sites, like some of our smaller plexes as well, where you, a five-plex, you can't physically play everything anyway. But there's also certain cinemas in certain regions where, for instance, Bollywood doesn't work because there isn't a strong enough audience catchment in that catchment area. But maybe a Tamil audience is huge there. So we play Tamil um, films. Uh, and then there's stuff where with blockbusters, you need every screen under the sun to be playing an Avengers Endgame because, you know, they're all going to sell out. But then there's other cinemas where, well, actually, you can still have two or three screens open playing other product because you know that you're going to hit a certain limit of, of interest in that kind of film. I mean, my the, the basics of my job is I have a core set of cinemas that I take care of on a weekly, weekly basis. I book their films in, I do their film times for them, and I sign them off and I, you know, I coordinate with my bosses and distribution to make sure that we're playing the best lineup in that, those cinemas that we can and that distribution are happy with their representation. You know, the, the, the worst kind of conversations is where we try to A, reduce a film on its number of shows or B, take a film completely off. <laughs> Quite often on a Monday, but you've only done £200. I don't care. I want my film to play. But the next film's done a 1000 How can you possibly argue that? Well, it's my job. I'm going to argue it. And some of them do that so, so well, and others maybe not so well. Uh, so it's, it's actually... It's, a, it's about relationships, you know, because over the years I've got to, I yeah. know everyone in distribution, in, in UK distribution quite well, uh, as we all do. I mean, I work with a team of nine and we all work very closely together to get the best results out of our cinemas. And we worked very well together with everyone in distribution. You have to really, you know. Um, we used to have a saying where on Monday, distribution can be your worst enemy, but Tuesday morning, you're best friends again. And that is certainly true. You know, you get through the Monday of negotiating and putting that line up in there that you're happy with that distribution's happy with and sometimes cinemas because quite often cinemas will come back to us and say actually we need to do this we need to do that and so we listen to our cinemas as well and we get feedback from them and we try and make we try and make sure everyone's happy but of course you know that's not always possible at some point someone's gonna be like oh i didn't get what i wanted but um you know, the, the the key thing is we want our customers to come along, have a really good selection of films available at, at times that work for them. That's the key. That's the important thing. I like to think that we succeed in that most times, um, but I'm pretty sure that there are times or in some people said, well, it, was, it wasn't on at five past six and that's the only time I can go to the cinema. Unfortunately, we... we you can never please no, everyone. We, we can't tailor make every lineup in every cinema for every person, especially in places where we literally have a catchment area of thousands of regular customers. I'm sure you have the same issues at the lights where people come in going, oh, it's not at the time I'd want it to or work patterns, you know. Um, but, but honestly, dear listener, we do try our very, very best. <laughs> so we, we're coming out of, of this dreadful pandemic. We had a, a year and a, and a half of it. And it's affected clearly the cinema industry in ways that were unimaginable. You know, shutdowns, then reopenings, uh, films scheduled to release, literally those, those dates changing. It'll be ridiculous to say how difficult that's made for your job, but I will ask it anyway. So how difficult has it been to, to think ahead uh, and with ever constant and sliding, sliding dates? How, how have you managed to pull through that? 
it's been a tough, tough time. Uh, it's been 13 months, although we did reopen at the back end of July, like the majority of cinema uh, chains. However, and I can't go into too many details about this, as I'm sure you guys appreciate, but um, as a chain, Cineworld had to close a little bit earlier than everyone else. We closed our doors on October 9th. And part of the reason for that, in a very broad general term, is if we hadn't done that and made that decision as a company, right now, today speaking, Cineworld may not exist. So it was quite... Yeah, I mean, we, we, reported, uh, we reported quite heavily on the like actual published news about the financial issues that Cineworld, financial pressure that Cineworld was under. So it's no secret that Cineworld has had a particularly hard year, being one of the biggest chains worldwide it's you know it's this lockdown has caused a lot more loss to them than what it would on a smaller chain such as ourselves the light yeah which to be honest i know this is going to sound weird but that's great you know it's good that the smaller chains because when we were going through our difficulties and odeon and view showcase empire they they, you know that they're all in the same boat but on varying levels obviously as has been reported in the press but the you know immediately we thought well if the smaller chains go you know uh there are key points uh of the culture of cinema in this country um as an industry we can't we can't afford to lose anyone in my opinion but you know if we lose some of those smaller independent chains it's a it is actually quite a considerable chunk that would go thankfully uh it seems everyone's making it through although i i do believe there are a few small independents like there's some single cinemas that haven't been able to survive unfortunately but yeah it was tough for us certain decisions were made um People, a lot of people put on furlough. I personally was put on furlough, came off furlough for the two months we were open, then put back on furlough. Um, personally, that's been tough for me, of course. I, I live alone in London and prices are going up. Thank you for that, Croydon Council. But uh, you, you, you muddle through as best you can. Uh, went back to work this week. We're working on getting our lineups ready for May 19th and hopefully having an exciting assortment of the films that are going to be available in mid, in fact, yeah, just a week or so from now we're going to be reopening. Uh, and it's nice to see everyone else getting ready to open in the next sort of week to two weeks as well. People setting their dates and saying to customers, we're reopening our doors. We're going to be safe because all the measures we put in place in August and September are still there. So I believe we're going to have 50% capacity. We're going to have the rules about mass and queuing and we're going to make it as safe an environment as possible uh, as i'm sure yeah like i say every cinema exhibitor is going through working through those stages right now like we did back in june and july but lee just coming back to your point yeah those never-ending shifting dates was just you know bond was the first film to big film to move and that was the 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 big hazard sign going up going like okay this is now very very real for our industry what's next Disney moved everything. Sony moved everything. Everybody just started to move everything. So I was like, okay. And we went into lockdown. It was it was tough through the summer. When we came back, I know you guys have mentioned on the show, Tenant wasn't the savior of cinemas. Flipping good film, I thought. But it just wasn't quite the blockbuster that we needed. A little bit too cerebral for some people. Maybe a bit too clever for its own good. But, you know, that's what Nolan does. But unfortunately... Uh, there, w- there wasn't anything to counteract that. I think it's a shame that films like Mulan weren't released at the cinema because that would have been a nice counterbalance to Tenet. In the industry, we've seen three or four blockbusters can live side by side and can still make lots of money. But again, it's that key element of uh, you know, offering the customer choice and giving them reasons to go to, as we say up north, the pictures. Go visit the pictures <laughs> and go see something nice. You know. So when it was just Tenet, 
and that was kind of it. And you had some smaller films like Unhinged and Proxima, but nothing that would really get people, I've got to go to the cinema. And more importantly, I've got to go to the cinema and maybe take that risk. Because, of course, that's gonna be, that was in the forefront of everybody's mind, whether you're a worker or whether you're just someone who is going out to the supermarket or whatever choices you were making. And then we went into the other lockdown over Christmas. So I've got to say this has been one, that, for me personally, and kind of have a personal moment here, as you can see from my hair and beard, I had uh, it was kind of a depressing time because uh, certainly when we got to January, we had no idea when things were going to change. Nobody did about any industry, but within the cinema industry, and and the fact that we had to close early and yes financial matters something that we can't affect you know it's the big boys that make these decisions we really uh yeah there was a lot of worried people and um and also a lot of people who have, have left and gone on to do other things left the company some people who unfortunately were made to leave the company that happens with it all walks of life you know um so yeah what's happened in the cinema industry and certainly within my company i know that has been has been the same for millions of people in other industries as well it's kind of ironic that this in a way has pulled us all together i think we've all got this in common now in in all in all walks of life not the best thing to pull us together <laughs> i'd have preferred the full-on zombie apocalypse let's just go for broke but <laughs> but instead we we get this pandemic i know andy would as well <laughs> yeah but instead we've at least got something that we know we we can see the end of now with you know we can feel a bit more positive and that's the thing talking to people in the industry everyone's just like oh it's so great to be back it's so good for you guys to be back yeah we're, let's get talking and arguing about film releases again you know so but we're getting back to doing our jobs you know and, uh, and also the fun side of it, today I got to see a film that's out in about a week and a half's time um, and get to see it ahead. So um, saying all that uh, and, and all the goodwill that you're saying that's gone with it for other cinema chains, et cetera, et cetera, what is the sense of anticipation like right now from audiences, from the industry? Do we feel as though this is where we've crossed into the hope that, that cinemas are going to get back to some sense of normality? Yeah, I think there's certainly a feeling of hope in the industry. However, it's tempered with, uh, tempered, sorry, with a, a, a loving lashings of reality. Cinema's going to get back on its feet. It's, it's actually survived worse than this. It survived two world wars. It survived TV coming along. It has survived the uh, social media revolution. It, cinema always finds a way to survive. Because I use this analogy um, before. People always used to think that theatre would die off, but theatre has been around for centuries and it always finds a way. And the weird thing is, is that in 2019, theatre had had its biggest year of box office gross in, of all time. And we as a cinema industry, UK, domestically, China especially, before what happened in China, obviously, but in 2019, it was the biggest box office at the cinema ever so so um those naysayers who said like oh cinema's dead and it's been dying for years sorry guys you don't have all the facts to hand actually cinema's quite strong and i think it's got the chance for revival now yes i mean we can talk about streaming services if you wish because they are now a part of our daily lives and they and it's here to stay uh and the whole thing about release windows where a film will show exclusively in cinema for 16 weeks and then go to home entertainment or to a streaming service or whatever those are now going to be drastically reduced and it's going to be a very different landscape but i guess in a way it's just giving customers and audiences the chance to just view things differently it's just giving them more choice and we know, the three of us, that there are cinema files, cinema goers, who they have been for 13 months chomping at the bit to get back out there and resume that part of their life. 
and also the social side of thing of going out having a meal taking the kids and going to the pictures going to see a film and then maybe like you know a bunch of lads go out watch a horror film on a friday night go to the pub afterwards they just have a great night out and and again if i may i always say this whenever i'm on a, invited onto a podcast cinema is still one if not the cheapest form of entertainment that you can do individually and as a group i know people complain about ticket prices well we do have a business to run and i know they complain about concessions prices well again we need to make profit so that we can keep functioning that's how business works anyone who runs their own business understands you know the you know the outlay and the profit margin and all of that business um but you, you know, you you go out for a night at the pub. You can spend a heck of a lot more than you could at the cinema. You go to a pop concert to see your favorite band or your favorite artist. It's going to cost you a fortune for those tickets. Football fans spend a lot more than you, the average cinema goer. So again, I just think cinema is so accessible. It is still. I think the best way to watch a film is to, you know, the best way to watch a movie is on the huge screen with a great surround system. And you may be surrounded by all these strangers rather than your family stuck on the sofa. But after 13 months, haven't we had enough of that? <laughs> it's great every so often. But do you really want to keep doing that? You know, go to the summer. I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever had this experience, but I've ended up chatting with people before a film starts and after a film starts and making friends in the cinema. Now, it doesn't happen everywhere. And there's some cinemas where you might get slapped if you tried it. But it's happened and it can happen. And I have friends who say the same kind of stories of like, oh, yeah, we met on a trip. To, we were in the you know cinema that might have a bar or an area where you can wait to go and watch your film. We started talking. And like me and Andy, when he first joined uh, UGC Sheffield, we just got talking and we realized straight away that we were kindred souls when it came to our love of films and comic books, computer games, that kind of thing. And the same with you, Lee. You know, I didn't realize you were such a big comic book fan uh, back when I knew you when you were coming in for the press screenings. I, yeah, yeah. I love that about you. Uh, but also the fact that you were just so you're, you're one of the few journalists who I've met through the years who has still got that genuine spark of love of film because and, and I hope I'm not speaking ill of your colleagues but some journalists I've met are kind of a bit jaded by it all they've seen every film and they just it's hard to impress them let's put it that way whereas no, no, whereas no. I think you just have that spark of if yeah if something really speaks to you you love it and also vice versa if something and Andy I know you're the the, the main cynic here if you hate something boy do you hate it and do you let people know? i don't hold back <laughs> but but that's great because you know you and i have had a lot of uh conversations where we agree on films and a lot of conversations where we don't uh and as and i always talk <laughs> wow wow west <laughs> and i think and i think as long as there's respect there especially between friends but even between strangers you know uh, i just think film conversation i realize we've gone off on a tangent here but film conversation <laughs> and chat about film keeping that just that love of it it, it, you know, I've been missing that for the last year. You know, talking about stuff on streaming is great, but going to the cinema, seeing the big blockbuster, or seeing a smaller film like a, a Nomadland or Minari or a Judas and the Black Messiah, whatever people might be choosing to go see in the next few weeks, just get talking about film again, and hopefully talking about a great cinema experience at whatever cinema chain that people go to. No, I, I agree. I agree totally. And I think one of the things that we've talked about on the show is the fact that a Nomadland would have would have been more impressive uh, and had an urgency to see it when it came out to the cinema and, and seeing it early on. The same for um, Trial of Chicago 7. I'm so glad that I, I saw that in a cinema. It, it's that sense of event that has been missing for all the films that we're looking forward to seeing on streaming and things that we've managed to see that we wouldn't have got to see anyway. I will be the first in line to see Black Widow on the, on the big screen. 
I would have seen, even though uh, my thoughts on on the uh, the Snyder Cut, I would have much preferred to have seen that in a cinema where it, it was it was meant to be. It was meant to be that sense of occasion. Mm-hmm. So we we seem to be making the path. How's that changed your your job then? When you're looking ahead with these changing schedules and you're looking at what's coming up after May 17th, what is it that that you've got to think about first and and how much more difficult is it now? Um, it, it's not per, it's not difficult per se, but the um, the release schedule has changed and, and still keeps changing and tweaking slightly. Even even this week, some more films have actually been brought forward. Um, just as an example, uh, Escape Room 2 was meant to be next year, but now it's come forward to summer. And so there's still a little bit of shuffling going on. Uh, Top Gun famously was going to be summer of this year, wasn't going to move. Well, now it's moved to November. Um, and uh, a big kids film has gone from this summer. Minions to The Rise of Gru is now next summer. But films like Jungle Cruise, uh, Hotel Transylvania 4, they are there for the family audience through the summer months. And we've got some great action like Wrath of Man and The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. I think that's the first time I've actually said that correctly. Uh, but the sequel to The Hitman's Bodyguard from a couple of years ago, uh, which I've seen a Red Band trailer on, and it just looks great fun. So the stuff for adults, the stuff for kids. So in in a weird way, Lee, things feel for us like they're actually getting back to normal because distributors are putting out a lot of varied content and a lot of different film titles. Um, Now, how's this summer going to play? Well, if I can be truthful for you, we don't really know. Uh, When we reopen our doors in the next few weeks, and of course on the second week we go into uh, May half term, and we've got some big films there like Peter Rabbit 2, for instance, I know you guys kind of went, oh, Peter Rabbit 2 on your last podcast. But the first one... Oh, it's going to be, it's going to do great business. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it, it'll be a piece of trash <laughs> I, like the first one was. But I remember that when that first one came out and I was working at the light and everyone was like, oh, this is going to do nothing. I was like, oh, don't under, <laughs> don't, don't under anticipate this kind of film. And it went crazy. Yeah. So we are expecting this. This is why we're opening for that week we're not opening early because we've got a refit going on at the moment but we are making sure we are opening for that half term week because peter rabbit 2 is going to bring the business oh absolutely the first film made 41 million pounds you know and it's such a yeah okay regardless of your opinion certainly as an adult as the film kids loved it it was so quintessentially british uh just like the paddington films although i would concede the paddington films are excellent and adults can enjoy them Uh, peter rabbit i mean you know i i personally i'm not a fan of james corden and it's tough whenever i hear his voice or see his very punchable face but you know he is a star some adults do like him and they will probably drag their kids along anyway saying i read this and i know peter rabbit from being a kid you're going to be introduced to it now oh and by the way james corden's peter rabbit and he's great and the kid will look at him and go are you my real parents who are you Uh, i'm sure there are many little (laughs) conversations like that might uh, occur but yeah that is going to be the first bona fide blockbuster now what's that going to do well, Tenet was supposed to be a £40 million film last year, did £17 million in the middle of a pandemic. Still a decent result, but not quite what we were hoping for. I think Peter Rabbit 2 has got the potential to be that one that, that breaks the box office and builds confidence. And I think that's what it's down to now. In the next few weeks, people are going to start being able to venture out. Next Wednesday, for, is it Monday? Sorry, we can, we can hug each other, hug ourselves if you want to, but you can hug people again. <laughs> you can get out there. And cinema will be at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Now, of course, the key is to make it 
enhancing, attractive, and make people want to go back to the cinema. And again, having a, a selection of, of, of varied and what a wide range of films is going to be key to that, um, which is something that we're working on. I'm sure the bookers at Light and, and View and Odin, everyone's going to be working on that. What's the best lineup we can get? Because we want people to come back. Two reasons. One, because A, it's great and it's fantastic to watch films on on a big cinema screen <laughs> b uh because it's a business and we do need to you know we've, we've got loans to pay and we've got you know we've got people to pay as well uh but also i guess for the third thing is we just want to get back to normal we want to get people feeling safe and feeling like we can go to the cinema and we can have a good time and we can feel like we've not been put at risk so yeah for the first few months it's gonna i think it's gonna be a lot like that but there are films there that I think will will generate interest. Like Spiral, you know, fans of the Saw franchise, I'm sure are going to come out for it. We've got Conjuring 3, which is another franchise film, two very good prior entries, and people were going to be, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> are going to be interested in seeing the third installment. So, uh, and there's many, many other films, and, you know, you're going to get the chance to see a lot of Oscar winners. And one big film for me in June, which I think now has got such potential to not only be critically successful with, with people who love film, but also financially successful, and people actually going to the cinema to see it, and that is The Father. Because not only is it, in my opinion, one of the best films of the year, I'm very privileged to get to see it back in January, but twice, in fact. But um, now that Anthony Hopkins has got the plaudits and the film has got so much good word of mouth, I believe it can only succeed. It won't fail. And it will be the tester. And it's not a blockbuster. No big visual effects. You've just got a beautiful story well told. Great characterizations and characters played out by you know a group of actors who i believe i know anthony got most of the plaudits but every member of that cast just hits it and nails their role to perfection in my opinion and that's what's exciting to see and again on a big screen it will work perfectly and so will the next marvel it film it, it broke me that film did it broke me me too i um, it, it... When I spoke about it on the show, I said about like how you know personal family history of dementia. I had seen my granddad go like that, and so everything in that was so honest yeah. and so real and so truthful, and it broke me. It's a film much like um, Dancer in the Dark mm. that was an absolutely solidly quality quality film, but it's not something I look for look to revisit <laughs> because it hit me so hard. Mm. Um, I can't I can't imagine having to see it again because I don't want to be put through that trauma again. Marvellous film. I think it'll play really well, particularly for your daytime audiences and your proper files. And the buzz that he got from the Oscars is going to do it marvellous wonders. So it, it sounds optimistic. And we're all optimistic. And we have to be because we're, we're cinephiles, all of us, and, and film geeks. <laughs> so saying that, it's it's a, an interesting looking summer. The schedule's all over the place. But what is it? What's that one thing that you think a, will excite an audience, and, and secondly, you're looking forward to the most. A multitude of films. Uh, like yourself, Black Widow, I'd rather see that on a big screen. Also, and I know it's not the best franchise in the world, but in terms of people's excitement, Fast and Furious films that over the last few years, they've delivered in terms of mm -hmm. spectacle, crazy OTT and silliness. I mean, if you've seen the new trailer, they literally do go into space or at least suborbit in this one. Absolutely mental. But you know what? As I watched that trailer, I had such a big grin on my face thinking, if I see that in my local IMAX, I'm going to have a great two hours, 
I know there won't be much plot and characterization, but it's going to be fun and it's going to be a great visual treat. Uh, so films like that I'm looking forward to. The big one for me, I guess, is Bond, and it's going to be Bond for a lot of people. I'm a huge James Bond fan, really excited. Can't believe that it should have been out almost two years ago now originally um and due to uh some natural delays and then the pandemic but we're finally getting it on september 30th this year um fingers crossed it won't move again <laughs> and then i have to say christmas is looking fantastic with the new spider-man film west side story <laughs> to completely juxtapose my love of big action and marvel films downton abbey 2 is going to be out this christmas and i love the downton tv show i know andy you said you didn't really get into it but the show was great the first film was really really brilliant uh really really brilliant that sounds like i'm 12 um but the sequel <laughs> is i think something we can get excited for releasing at christmas time it's a film that just hits every demographic from young to old uh and will play through into 2022 for for months and months um Plus, we've got another Matrix film coming along. So, yeah, I think it's going to be, um, just going back to your previous question, actually, it's going to be quite an interesting summer, potentially a slow start. But the back end of this year, or Q4, quarter four, as we refer to it, has got the potential to, dare I see it, return us to the kind of cinema box office levels we saw two years ago, potentially. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, indeed. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Fess. Great to see you. It's been, I can't believe it's been 16 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really can't. It just feels like like weeks ago. Yeah, pre-pandemic at least. Well, to, to be fair, I've been listening to your show now since uh, December, and I've listened to uh, random pods that you guys did um, when you first started. So, in a way, Lee, it feels like I listen to you. I, you're in my ears every week, mate, uh, <laughs> and and so are you, Andy. So it just kind of it, it's nice to actually have that familiar. Yeah, and I don't want to be like all celebrity starstruck here, but you guys are friends of mine. You know, I can consider you good friends, even though I've not seen you, Lee, in quite some time. Uh, and Andy, although we... Friendship doesn't change, it changes location. Yeah, exactly, you know, and Andy, yeah. we got to meet up last year, thankfully, pre-pandemic, and meet up with our good friends. Literally just before it. I know. and we... It was my birthday weekend, ex... um, and then literally I went back to work and was back at work for like all of 10 days. <laughs> before um, we were shut down yeah, yeah exactly and I, I don't think we even really knew what was coming you know we met with a good friend of ours called van and we had a really lovely evening yeah. together and it was fantastic but before prior to that it'd been a while since i'd seen you i think maybe the last film days we did you know so uh, incredible 